and welcome to a Time Shifter Supplemental. I'd hope to get this out a little more timely, but to paraphrase Jurassic Park's Dr. Malcolm, uh, life uh, finds a way to completely derail good plans. What I wanted to do was share the films I watched in October. I took it upon myself to watch a Halloween and or horror-related film or television show every night for the entire month. That's 31 nights, and I managed to actually get in 34 viewings. Uh, More on that in a little bit. I did not have any particular goal other than watching something every night. There was no theme or anything. It all ended up pretty random. I was tempted to work in a couple sequels of a film or two, but I decided to avoid that to maintain the randomness of the month. I even let my rewatch of the Underworld movies slide a bit. Some of the films I had seen before, others were first-time viewings. A few were films that I felt were ones that I should have watched before now, and others just because I had always been curious about since I first saw the VHS box on the rental shelf. Almost all of the films are easily available from a variety of streaming services if you'd like to watch any yourself. My month of October started with a rewatch of 1958's Return of Dracula. All living things are my prey. The undead are my allies. The night is my domain. And the dark, dank tomb my dwelling place. I feast on human blood. May be yours, so beware, beware. Brand new, all new, the return of Dracula. From beyond the grave comes the dreaded Dracula, spreading corruption and horror wherever his cursed shadow falls. Innocent beauty becomes the vampire's prey as paralyzing fear turns to hypnotic fascination. You will do as I say. Yes. I bring you death, a living death. One drop of your blood and you're bound to me. Jenny Blake's soul must be freed, Doctor, and all those souls of her victims, if any. How? With a point at stake, right through the heart. This movie was ahead of its time and is a true horror film, meaning that the events indeed focus on being horrific rather than just, ah, a monster! Dracula, played by Francis Letterer, assumes the identity of an artist en route to America to visit his American cousins whom haven't seen him since he was a child. After moving in with the family, he sets his sights on young and beautiful Rachel with the goal of making her his immortal bride. Hammer's Dracula stormed the theaters and buried this low-budget black and white under its vivid technicolor, but I'd actually argue that this may be the better film. I followed this up the next night with a film that I had not seen in 30 years, 1989's Puppet Master. It's just an okay film, but you can see how someone thought there was gold to be mined from the idea. And mine they did. Less than 10 minutes of screen time in their debut, and the puppets start a 14-film franchise. Night 3 is what you would call a guilty pleasure, if I at all felt guilty about enjoying any film. 2009's Vampire Girl vs. Frankenstein Girl. 
This comes out of Japan, and if you think that me loving this bizarre, ultra-violent, blood-soaked horror comedy is wrong, well, the heck with you. This over-the-top spectacle is amazingly, disturbingly fun. Night 4 is a night I'd like to do over. 1964's Face of the Screaming Werewolf. Incoherent mess of two films stitched together with additional footage shot by indie filmmaker Jerry Warren. Hypnosis, Aztec mummies, and a werewolf. It all makes as much sense as you'd expect. Night 5, I went international again and watched 1960's Eyes Without a Face, a French film that is dark and surprisingly graphic, both visually and in tone. Highly recommend this one to anyone who has not seen it. For night number 6, I killed two birds with one movie. I needed to do my synopsis for Orphan Entertainment on The Phantom from 1931. It's a sort of old dark house film from action dramas. It's kind of unremarkable, especially when you consider Universal Pictures just a few months earlier released the classic Dracula. Don't be surprised you've never heard of this one, and if you're at all curious, the Orphan Entertainment episode is live and available to listen to at orphanedentertainment.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Night 7? I might have been fudging it a bit. It's not exactly horror or scary, but there are skeletons and creatures galore in 1963's Jason and the Argonauts. And since it was recording night on night number 8, there is no time for a film. So I watched a Halloween-themed episode of Alien Nation, Night of the Screams. It's the Halloween season and overseers are turning up dead, murdered in the style of the Tanktonese legend of Tagdot, which we get to hear about in a very spooky tale from Uncle Mudri. He rises among his people on the third rotation of the equinox when the paraxial sun is in line. Neat. And what does he do? He fills the night with screams. There are many stories about Tagdot, but only one theme prevails. Evilness consumed by madness. His darkness lives in the hearts and minds of all Tanktonese. He was a conqueror with fire in his hands and steel in his heart. He expected adulation, and when our great fathers gave him none, the night broke with their cries as his armies spread through the cities, destroying all life in their path. And they were merciless. Hands were severed and their victims painfully bled to death. Body upon body lined the streets. And he walked among the bodies. Thousands upon thousands of bodies. And he cried. He cried not for what he had done, because there were no more to destroy. And now is the time for Tagdot to return and again walk among his people. Matt and George are on the case and dealing with more than just a murderer when they find themselves actually having to defend one of the former enslavers. This was a brilliant series, and unfortunately it's just as relevant today as it was in 1989. Night 9 of Halloween, 1979's Alien. It is amazing how well this film holds up. 1979, the next decade or more, are filled with movies trying to top this one, and few, if any, even come close to it. The tenth night, I uncovered Equinox, 1970 Lovecraft on a film school budget. 
what happened to Dr. Waterman. Only this man, last to see him alive, knows. The Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil. The invisible barrier between light and the forces of darkness. The supernatural before your very eyes as four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their sanity, for their lives, for their eternal souls. Equinox, a story that defies logic, confounds belief. Dr. Waterman, wait, wait! I can't believe it, it was just a fall. What is the secret of the thousand-year-old book? What are the unspeakable horrors conjured by the forces of evil? What is the fiendish power of the ring that enslaves and destroys? What is the one symbol that can hold at bay the hosts of hell unleashed on earth? Equinox, proving again that there is more in heaven and on earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy. Equinox. Begins where Rosemary's baby left off. A little Manos meets Harryhausen. Kind of impressive and includes some real clever in-camera trickery and WKRP in Cincinnati's Frank Bonner. Night 11 was a big night. I visited the Cincinnati Art Museum for a vampire film marathon. It was a brilliant night, and I hope it won't be the last time the museum hosts something like this. For our viewing pleasure was Let the Right One In from 2008, Swedish film about a young boy who is uh, regularly bullied by his classmates. His wish for a friend seems to come true when he meets quote-unquote 12-year-old Ellie, who moves in next door to him. I enjoyed this one, but thought it was just a few minutes too long. Would have enjoyed it a little more without the coda ending. The second film was A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This was directed by Anna Armapur and released in 2014. It's called the first Iranian vampire western and was Armapur's debut feature. It's a mashup of comedy, horror, and romance. And although filmed at a small California town, the story takes place in the fictitious Iranian ghost town, Bad City. The film is spoken in Farsi with English subtitles. That and the setting makes the entire film feel like something you aren't supposed to see, like it comes from some underground Middle East filmmaker. I absolutely loved this movie. Loved it. The film ended and the credits rolled at just the right time, I might add, and immediately all I could think of was how much I was looking forward to watching this movie again. The night ended with 1979's Nosferatu the Vampire, directed by Werner Herzog. This is his homage to F.W. Murnau's silent classic Nosferatu. This is a rough film to end a long night on. Slow and unnecessarily padded. Could've, should've been a better film. I was still in the mood for some classic horror the next night, so I tossed in The Bride of Frankenstein. I had completely forgotten that it begins with Mary Shelley continuing the story she had just apparently told to Lord Byron and Percy Shelley. So are we to assume that the previous film, this film, and all the following Frankenstein films are actually deeper works of fiction within a fictitious universe? Night 13 of Halloween. It was time for some 80s cheese. 
Graydon Clark's 1988 genetically engineered feline-killing machine-based film, The Uninvited. What in the world was anyone thinking? Was this a response to Cujo? Five years and a terrible plot too late? Sticking with the 80s the next night, I had a little better luck. Watched a movie that I've known about since the commercials aired on TV in the early 80s. 1984's Chud. Cannibalistic, humanoid, underground dwellers. For an 80s monster horror film, this is an odd one. The gore is quick, our heroes are middle-aged doughy white guys, and the one woman never gets naked. If you look close, you do catch a a very young John Goodman. Number 15 was from 1961, The Snake Woman. This was a far more ambitious story than the filmmakers could properly pull off. Good on them for trying, but the budget and the level of actors just leave you with an unrealized potential. Karloff and Lugosi get top billing in the 1940 film Black Friday, but Stanley Ridges is the real star in this Jekyll and Hyde-style story. With almost no additional makeup, Ridges creates two very distinct characters that could almost have you thinking it was two different actors. Night 17 was The Black Sleep. Beyond any terror ever known, five of the screen's greatest horror thrill stars, Basil Rathbone, Akim Tamirov, Lon Chaney, John Carradine, Bella Lugosi, and these beautiful women in their power. Pass through a madman's hellfire. Enter an ancient abbey's secret passage into the most terrifying tortured dungeon from the medieval past. Shocking victims of a famous brain specialist gone berserk. Plunging you into a reign of terror. That's terrible fluid. But that means this man is alive. Yes, alive. This is criminal. Monstrous. Let go! Why not use her? Put her under black sleep. Take her up to surgery at once. A horror beyond belief. Feeding on beauty. <laughs> Lusting to claw the Stop. world apart. Basil Rathbone is a scientist who is kidnapping people and slicing into their brains to try to discover the cure for his brain-damaged wife. John Carradine, Bill Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr., and Tor Johnson appear, and it is sad to see them reduced to dialogue-less monsters here. It's not a bad film, but perhaps 15 minutes or so too long. For the 18th night, I cheated a little, again for the sake of a podcast episode. By now, you've hopefully heard our discussion on the Philadelphia Experiment. This was the film that took up that this night, and I'm giving it a pass since we do see a character watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Next is an American international flick from 1956. Only they could have come up with this fishy tale of hypnosis and prehistoric reptilians. The only thing that really stands out in the sheet creature was Paul Blysdale's amazing monster suit. Speaking of Blysdale's creature suit, it makes a return appearance in 1959, along with the man himself, and the much too fun for its own good, The Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow. I've watched this three or four times this year, and as I've completely fallen in love with this movie. 
There is a charm and sense of fun throughout that I just find very rare. I dove back into the 80s for the next few films, 1987's The Gate. I remember seeing this cover box in the shelf in Blockbuster, but never bothered to rent it. It has haunted me all these years. As it turns out, the movie is more 80s than maybe even the 80s, but it turns into a pretty good kids in peril horror flick. The ending, like many films of the genre, had me thinking the true horror is what the kids are going to experience as they try to explain what happened to them in their house. I had to work in a living dead film of some kind, and rather than the often and dare I say overviewed Night of the Living Dead, I went with the 1985 Return of the Living Dead. I had not watched this one in years, but it was just as much fun as I remembered. Night 23. I revisited a comedy that should have been a Halloween staple, 1985's Transylvania 65000. This is almost a fun homage to the classic Universal and Hammer monster films, but somewhere it just loses its way and it ends up being a bit of a mess. I'd say it's cute, but it's best kind of ends somewhere at the 45-minute mark. Night 24 is one of my only dips into the 90s. Split second. Rutger Hauer hunting a giant heart-eating monster. What is this creature? Where did it come from? What does the title mean? Doesn't matter. It's the 90s. The next couple of nights are both the I-should-have-watched-this-by-now movies. 1988's Waxwork was fun, but it should have been awesome. Everything I've read, and after watching the film I believe it to be true, the MPAA made them edit the crap out of this. And it's such a shame. Amazing cast, amazing filmmakers, and it's all kind of wasted. Which is also a bit how I felt about, and I know I'm in the minority on this, 1987's Monster Squad. You know who to call when you have ghosts. But who do you call when you have monsters? We're the Monster Squad. What's a squad? It's like Miami Vice, I think. They're young and inexperienced. Naughty virgin! They're a bit disorganized. Monsters are not real. We don't know that, sir. 2,000-year-old dead guys do not get up and walk away by themselves! But when strange things start happening in town... There's a monster in my closet. Whoa! Look at that big, scary monster! What's happening? Do I have a werewolf? Silver bullet? They're the only ones ready to do battle. Something's out there that's killing people. And if it's monsters, nobody's gonna do a thing about it but us. Soon the creatures of the night shall rule the world. Real monsters? Us? Midnight in the world, remember? Maybe we can be like mass squad and stingy. Two mass bombs. Down to 35. Sit back up. Hurry up. Mass squad. The book is right. Don't you see it's all true? By midnight. You guys. They won't seem so young anymore. Kick him! Monster Squad. Wolfman's It was okay. I liked the first half or so, as it contained some great homages to the classic films. But the last third? 
I feel it kind of loses its way and just becomes random and scattered. It's not an unenjoyable film, it's just not as great as I would have liked. Family Movie Night and Night 27 of Halloween got combined so we could watch Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. Not their strongest outing, but still good fun. This got me in the mood to watch the Karloff original from 1932. You know, the original 30s Universal films are truly a class among themselves. Even their immediate sequels lose a little something, and the films from even 10 years later fall further and further in generic schlock monster movies. Night 28 was a bit of a pass for me. I figured I'd watch two great films the previous night, so I went with one I've watched before and in all honestly, I barely paid attention to. Voids to the Prehistoric Planet. It's kind of still Halloween themed though, as it's a Russian movie masquerading as an American movie, and it has a robot costume that would win any contest. Well into the home stretch and I dialed up Return of Swamp Thing. Cheesy as all hell. Didn't realize it was directed by Jim Wynorski. <laughs> it must have just killed him not to have gratuitous nudity. Not sure how he managed to make it through all 27 days of filming. I almost waited to the 31st for this film, but decided to watch it on the eve of All Hallows' Eve. If there's a more perfect night before Halloween movie than 1959's House on Haunted Hill, I don't know what it is. Finally, we reached the 31st night of Halloween. Walked my son around on a cold and very windy night to collect lots of candy, while the wife passed out uh, our candy to nearly 200 ghosts, goblins, football players, Disney princesses, and dinosaurs. Then as everyone crashed from the sugar highs, I watched 1988's Pumpkinhead. It's another I-should-have-seen-this movie and just never had. Stan Winston and some amazing practical creature effects. A true horror, too, and that a bunch of kids really don't deserve what's happening to them. Really enjoyed this one, and I'm very surprised it does not seem to get the adoration it deserves. Somehow Jason, Michael, Freddy, and Chucky took the one this one's spotlight in 1988, and I'd say that's a damn shame. So that is it. 31 nights, 33 films, and one TV show. It was a busy October. I had a blast doing this, and I think it's something I'll repeat next year. Not sure if I'll do the random selection tactic that I did this year, or if I should plan it out a little better. Maybe if I get some suggestions of films from friends or listeners, I'll start a list. It would be really fun if I can manage to come up with 31 films I had not seen before. Well, thanks for listening to this very late supplemental episode. If you have any thoughts on any of the films I mentioned today, or if you have a suggestion for next year, send me an email to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com, message me on Facebook via the group, or contact me on Twitter at TimeshiftersPod. I'd love to hear from you. So thanks again, and I hope everyone else had a wonderful October and a fantastic Halloween. 